You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you guys. My name is Ryan. I serve as the lead pastor here at the church. Today is a special day. Uh, we're going to be having some baptisms, and so we're ex- real, real excited about that. Some folks have already pre-registered to be baptized, but if you, maybe you didn't, you, you, didn't, you didn't get registered, but you want to be today, we got everything you need to get baptized later in the service, we'll do that. So we'll do that both first service and second service today. So really excited about that. Well, hey, today we're starting a brand new message series called Overcome. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up into First Peter. And we'll work through the whole book. It'll take us about nine weeks to do that or so, and we'll get started. Um, kind of big question is to start off with is kind of what do you do when all of life seems to come crashing down on you? Uh, I can remember one of the, one of the challenges uh, years ago when I was, uh, before I had met Leslie, it was kind of one of the worst days of my life. Ever had one of those before? Just kind of like you could categorize it as one of the worst it was uh, the week of 9-11 when uh, the planes crashed into the World Trade Center. I was in college at the time. I was single. I was pretty discouraged and depressed already. My girlfriend at the time I thought I was going to marry uh, broke up with me uh, at the Dixie Cafe, a little restaurant. I told her I wanted to be a pastor, and she said, I don't want to be a pastor's wife. And I said, well, I guess this is our last Dixie Cafe dinner. Um, I was discouraged, heartbroken, 9-11 had hit. It was where terror hit America for the first time. Like that level for me. I was, everything kind of the whole, like Alan Jackson says, kind of the world stopped turning in that moment. And everything kind of shut down when you saw those planes crash into the World Trade Center. We stood there in the cafeteria of this little McClellan Community College and watched in total disbelief and shock and started calling friends and loved ones that we had in New York. And yes, people from Arkansas have friends in New York, yes. Imagine that. But uh, that same week, my, my, I had a family member die that I loved tremendously. That same week, I got into a pretty significant ski accident. Um, and so I was dealing with the loss of a loved one, and then I had this ski accident where I literally, I was slalom skiing, ski kicks up, hits me in the eye, busts my eye. I, the, the doctor said, you're, you're lucky that your pupil didn't rupture um, from the impact of the ski. It looked pretty gross at the time. I was a youth pastor, and I had to wear a patch, and every once in a while when the kids were talking too much, I'd say, I'd open it up and go, ah. They just thought, they thought, oh, that was terrible. I had this big, nasty red eye. And that same week, my dog died. So this is a week that I would say when everything comes crashing down. Um, I was thinking this week of kind of how to illustrate that, uh, this crashing down bit. And I don't know if you guys, um, this is a rabbit trail and I'll get to it, but how, how many of you guys ever watch just funny YouTube videos? You know what I'm saying? Just from time to time. You just kind of like lay there and you're like, oh, this is funny. Oh, and you see another one. Oh, this is funny. Uh, my daughter recently said, hey, dad, I want to show you this video of a couple of probably Arkansans uh, uh, at a golf shop or whatever. And guy falls through the roof and acts like it's no big deal. His world kind of comes literally crashing down. So, you know, the guy literally, he's like, there's a video camera, thankfully, in the shop that captures this incident. 
And all of a sudden, you just see this guy fall from the roof, hits the ground, and then lays there, and he says to his buddy, hey, Ron. And the guy says, hey, Billy. And you're like, you just fell through the roof. I think we got the video. I want to show it to you. Check this out. It's coming. Oh, it's not coming. That's great. When your message comes crashing down. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. Well, you didn't need to see it anyway. You can Google it. Just Google, hey, Ron. Hey, Billy. The guy literally falls through the roof, hits the ground, and they have this like sweet little funny interaction. And you're just like, are you serious? Um, it's a matter of perspective, I guess. When your world comes crashing down. When it all comes crashing down, here's the question I hear from my friends that are far from God and far from the church. They ask this big question, where is God when bad things happen, even to good and godly people, Ryan? Where is God in the middle of the tragedy? Why, why, why does this happen? Where is God in the middle of this? Two things that we need to know when we're dealing with tragedy, things come crashing down in your life, the first thing is that you need is you need perspective. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, we're going to look at perspective. Everything that 1 Peter does in the very first section of the, this letter that we're gonna, I'm going to tell you more about is helping us understand perspective. The rest of the book or the letter is about a game plan. You not only need perspective when your world comes crashing down, you got to have a game plan. And the rest of 1 Peter, starting in verse 13, starts with a therefore... And it's the game plan all the way to the very end. So let me tell you about Peter. Peter is a great guy. If Peter was alive today and say we had the Apostle Paul too, uh, Peter's my kind of guy. He's not the theologian. He's a practical pastor of hope. Um, he mentions grace and hope and peace through his letters. Peter was a regular guy. He was a fisherman. The Apostle Paul is a theologian. If Peter was alive today, he'd be excited about ESPN sports and then after the game, going up to Lake Pleasant to go fishing. The Apostle Paul would probably be at home um, watching the History Channel, sipping green tea. Okay? He's a scholar. He's a thinker. Peter's a practitioner. Peter is a pastor. Peter had a brother named Andrew. Andrew's the one who heard about Jesus being the Messiah. He runs and grabs Peter. Peter, you got to meet Jesus. This is Jesus. You got to know him. Peter's kind of known for being a big mouth. Peter's really not the very churchy guy. He's not really a churchy guy. He's the kind of guy that would, could tell you the difference between bass and crappie. He could tell you all about the fish. Like I said, uh, Paul was a theologian. Peter was a fisherman. Paul would have watched the History Channel. Peter would have watched ESPN Sports. Peter's imperfect. He denies Jesus three different times. Um, and then the Lord reinstates Peter and commends him three different times. Peter's kind of the loudmouth. He's a courageous leader, though. He was called the Rock. He was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He'd later be executed in Rome the same year the Apostle Paul was executed. And tradition tells us that Peter would die a martyr's death being crucified upside down because he didn't think it was worthy that he could be crucified the same way his Lord was. Peter, when he first met Jesus, he was fishing and Jesus said, hey Peter, 
You're fishing? I want to help you become a fisher of men. Jesus and Peter had a very close relationship, and what Peter's doing is he's going to be writing a letter to a group of believers that are kind of scattered throughout the Roman uh, uh, Empire in five different provinces to encourage and to help them, because guess what? And it's a sense as a kind of a prophetic a message to them because it was written in about 61, 62, 63 AD. And, and um, the Caesar that comes to power um, soon is Nero. And Nero is going to, in time, implement systematic persecution for all Christians. And in fact, in 64 AD, Nero, I mean, this is a bad name for those of you that should watch the History Channel. I watch the History Channel too, just so you know. Um, Nero's a name associated with like a Hitler or Stalin. I mean, Nero's not a name like you, you don't even name your dog Nero, okay? If you got a dog Nero, that's just, you're, you've crossed the line. Nero's a bad name. Nero is a gentlemen, that will ha- what will happen is Peter's writing this letter to believers that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. This is after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Je- Peter has been commissioned by Jesus to uh, plant churches, and persecution's about to break out in incredible high levels of intensity. They're already feeling persecution. They're being slandered. They're being uh, mocked. They're being made fun of. And what's really interesting is that in 64 AD, Nero kind of was obsessed with uh, the city and development. Um, Church tradition tells us that he lights a slum section of Rome on fire and then blames the Christians as an opportunity for him to kind of demo one section of of the uh, Roman city and then have an excuse to go ahead and rebuild it. Uh, Nero's a very, very bad guy. And what's happening in church history right now at the time that the, the Apostle Peter is writing this is that 30 years have kind of gone by and the church has gone from zero Christians to more than 400,000 Christians. And they're, at first they were really not a threat to Rome. Now they're becoming a threat because they're talking about a kingdom coming They're talking about a new king, a new time, a new era in which Jesus will reign as king. And the Romans are honestly, they're a little put out by the Christians. Christians are thought of at this point in time, there's some misrepresentations about Christians of the first century. Christians were considered, listen to me, atheist by Rome. They were considered atheist because they wouldn't worship Caesar. They wouldn't worship any of the Greek gods. And so the Romans around them, the world that they lived in as Christians, they're like, we're called atheists? The Romans didn't like the Christians. They didn't like them. They also even called them, a rumor came out during this first century that they were called cannibals. They were just weird people because they talked about taking the Lord's Supper and that every time they would gather and worship, they would take communion and drink the Lord's blood and eat his body. And they're just kind of like, who are these weird people? And they were more frustrating to the Romans and the cultures that they weren't any fun. They thought they're not fun enough. They don't go to the gladiator games. They don't go and watch people. I mean, at the time, Nero, what he would do, he was a sick and twisted man. 
He would take, he would take uh, prisoners of war or he would take even Christians and clothe them in animal skins and let them loose into the, into the stadiums and the arenas and sick his wild hunting dogs on them to tear them to pieces. And the Christians, had, were, they didn't have a stomach for that. No, we're not going to watch this. this is, we're not laughing. We're not sitting in the seat of mockers and delighting in evil. Additionally, Nero would do things like he would impale Christians upon spears for his dinner guests, light them on fire, and in a courtyard setting, much like we've got out here, there's people being burned alive, and he's acting like everything's just wonderful, and it's just a part of showing the power and the pompous of Nero, the Caesar. Christians were just weird. They were called cannibals. They were even called, uh, they, just, they were just party poopers. They didn't go to the parties, the theaters or people. There was sexual orgies going on in live settings. I mean, you think that we've invented perversion or violence. This has happened from the very beginning. Wherever there's people, there's problems. And so what Peter is doing for us is he's going to lay down kind of first a perspective that you need to have and I need to have when everything comes crashing down, and then second, and we're going to work through it for the rest of the eight weeks in the series, is a game plan. So let's do this. Let's uh, read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's kind of the introduction. This is the letter. This is how a letter would work in the first century. And you see, he, 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 instead of signing it at the very end, you do it at the very beginning. And he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in five Roman provinces here, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's interesting, grace is mentioned 10 different times in this little epistle, this little letter. Now, Peter like I told you, he's kind of an ordinary guy, but man, he uses some big churchy words right there. The word apostle means the sent one. An apostle is, marks of an apostle were four things. One is that they would have to testify to the risen Lord Jesus. Apostles, they're not today. These are people that have testified to the living Lord. Secondly, they were called by Jesus to go build his church. That's where you get the great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. That was the command in the very beginning. And what Peter's got to have the privilege of doing is not only did he get to witness and testify Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, he got to testify to seeing the church begin to expand, moving from zero people in the church to more than 400,000 people at this time. He was called by Jesus. He was called the rock. God used him in incredible ways. He was the primary pastor and leader in Jerusalem. The third mark of an apostle is their infallible, inspired writing and teaching. That's not you. That's not me. They're infallible. When they speak, thus says the Lord, that means it's the Lord. They're totally infallibly speaking and teaching about God in his uh, plan for rescue and redemption. And the fourth thing that we saw with apostles is that they're miracles. They could perform miracles, powerful miracles. Peter did that. Paul did that. The apostles did that. 
Another big word that Peter uses is the word elect. Elect means to be placed into a position or chosen for a purpose. Israel, the nation of Israel, was elected by God. They, that means that they were saved for a service, though. When we elect political officials today, it's for the good of the city or the good of the state, for the good of others. Election in this understanding is understand it's placed into a position for a purpose. Third word that Peter uses is that word foreknowledge. That means that it's a forward knowledge. That God has a forward knowledge and understanding of everything that's going to take place. All your tragedy, all your trial, all your troubles, all of that. God has a forward knowledge. This is what happens at my house, and this bothers me tremendously. When somebody has a forward knowledge on a movie we were about to watch. So I, I, I don't like to know the whole thing. I want to experience the moment. So when we go to a movie and then my daughter or my son says, oh, I've seen this. And I'm like, okay, don't, don't tell me anything. And then they go, oh, watch out right here. I'm like, no, don't tell me that. You know, you're sitting there watching a movie with somebody that's already seen it. They know everything that's going to happen before it happens. And you're sitting there and you're kind of like, ah, uh, some of you like to know, tell me everything. I'm like, how can you do that? It's like people who DVR football games and they watch, the, they, they watch it ahead of time and, and or they watch it and they know it and then they sit down and watch it again and it's like, you, you already know the result, you know? Foreknowledge is this forward knowledge and then sanctification, that word is used as well. It means growing in holiness. And so there's this beautiful commitment that God the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus are all working together. The whole Trinity is at work. And the Apostle Peter shows us that. And he calls these believers elect exiles. That means that they kind of don't belong there. Here's the message for you too. You don't belong here. You're, you're not home. Our citizenship as believers is in heaven. And that makes all the difference in the world. Perspective. We got to keep it into perspective. So let's read verse 3. We'll work through it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That word born again means that you literally it's like a new life. And so we're going to see three results of being born again. There follow right along in your text. He says he's caused us to be born again to a, number one, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's number two. You get born again, you get a living hope, you get an inheritance. And then this inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you. Let me pause right there. You've got an inheritance waiting for you. The good news is, is it's being guarded. Look at verse 5. He says, who by God's power are being guarded. That's a military term where soldiers would march into a city and they would set up a garrison and hold the city. There's this, by the power of God, there's this inheritance. And an inheritance is, if somebody has, a, say, a piece of property and they, they, they hold it, for you upon their death, when they die, then that inheritance is passed on. What do we have as believers? We have an inheritance. That when Jesus died, 
we get possession of a future inheritance. And that inheritance is heaven, and there's this joy and excitement waiting to come. He says, verse 5, who by God's power being guarded through faith, for, number three, there's the result of being born again, is there's this salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by trials, various trials. Let me stop right there. He says that there's this salvation that will be revealed. But then he says, but there's this rejoicing that we can have. But then he's honest and says this too, this idea of being grieved. I think it's important to note that, the, that Peter is acknowledging the Christian life. It's two things at the same time. There's incredible joy and there's incredible sorrow mixed up in the Christian life. In that same sentence, uh, there is these in the present verbs, these present tense verbs, rejoice and grieved. There's these verbs that are intense that explain the Christian life and these trials. What other trials are going through? They're being insulted. They're being mocked. They're being made fun of. They're being ostracized. What are your trials that you're going through? Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're about to go through a divorce. Maybe you just came out of divorce. Maybe there's a death in the family or there's somebody really sick or maybe you have a child and you pray and you ask God, why don't you heal my child? And it's not happening. There's these trials of financial trials. There's these financials. There's these, ch- these trials of anxiety and depression and insomnia. And you're asking the question, Lord, all these trials, how do I respond? How do I overcome? The Apostle Peter writes to us in verse 7, he says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's this reality that we're going to go through trials, and there's this reality that in the trial, somehow there's going to be a test And the test is, will you trust the Lord? And through it all, he's going to make it better for you. Doesn't mean you're going to escape the trial. It means you're going to endure the trial. You have eternal life, but God's making bad things good and creating gold out out of nothing. And so what we see here is Peter is pushing on this idea that we need to keep it in perspective. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, They haven't seen Jesus like Peter has. He says, you love him. Though you do not know, though you do do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Verse nine, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace of that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What, they're, what the Peter's referring to is that the prophets prophesied, specifically in the sufferings of Christ, in Isaiah chapter 53, that they were prophesying about this Messiah that was coming, this king that was coming. And they're prophesying, but they don't know the time and the day when he's going to come, but they're sharing about it. And they long to kind of know and know when it was going to happen. 
and the subsequent glories, that is Isaiah 11, that the prophets were, that he's referring to from, from about the prophets. In verse 12, it says, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that you have now been announced to, you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Bible says that even the angels are curious about how God's, work, God's grace works in salvation, how God elects people. He chooses people unto a, a holy life and a new life and causes rebirth. And he loved the, the angels are curious about what, how God is working. So here's what we're going to learn about perspective. We got to keep things in perspective. Out of that passage, I'm going to highlight there are three things that we need to see really clearly when it all comes crashing down. The first is our salvation. You and I need to keep our salvation is going to be a huge point of our perspective to understand. We got to keep this in perspective. Whenever we're going through a trial, whenever we're going through a hardship, when the whole world seems to come crashing down on top of us, remember to keep your salvation in perspective. Look at verse 3. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God has uh, called us, everyone who believes in Jesus, to be born again. If you can, thumb over to John chapter 3, probably one of the best passages about being born again. In John chapter 3, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus. Uh, this is during the life of Jesus, before he was crucified. And Nicodemus has some questions about Jesus. He wants to know about this idea of being born again. And by the way, born again, sometimes, you know, you, I heard somebody say to me the other day, they said, hey, are you a Christian? I said, yes, I'm a Christian. And I said, are you a Christian? They said, yeah. And I said, okay, um, or like what kind of Christian? And they said, well, you know, a Presbyterian, Episcopalian, whatever. They, you know, they go through these denomination listings as I've asked people over the years. And then they've said to me, are you one of those born again Christians? And I'm like, yes. Yeah, you, you got to be born again to be a Christian. Look what Nicodemus kind of asked that question. John chapter 3. Uh, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why? Well, didn't want everybody to see him with Jesus, I guess. He says he came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher and you come from God, for no one can do the signs that you, you do unless God is with them. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you know that if you're going to make it through a hardship, you got to keep perspective? And did you know that perspective depends on whether you're born again or not? If you're not born again, if you don't understand your salvation, then you can't have perspective. Jesus goes so far to say, let me read it again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You gotta keep it in perspective. Whatever you're going through, first thing you gotta understand is your salvation is crucial 
to being able to see how God's rule and how God's reign works through our world. In, in 1 John 5, 4, I'll just paraphrase, it says this, um, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. Verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Your salvation is critical to understand as you're going to face trials and tribulations and challenges in life. Look at verse 3 in 1 Peter again, chapter 1. I want to point out to you that your salvation is secure because the one who selects you. Verse 3, it says, according to his great mercy. Let me pause right there. Your salvation is about God's mercy, not your good merits. According to his, God's great mercy, not your good merits. If you feel like your salvation hinges on you, you will be depressed. You will be discouraged. You do not have hope. The salvation that God offers is dependent upon God's great mercy. It's not on your good merits. You didn't earn it. God didn't look down from heaven and go, ooh, that's a good one. He's going to do all these great things. I'm going to choose him to be on my team because he's just doing so good. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. He chooses you in salvation out of his great mercy, undeserved, unearned. He causes, look what it says in verse three, he has caused us to be born again. Who caused us to be born again? God did. We were dead in our sins, lost in away from God, totally dead, totally unable to respond, and God causes us to be born again. I know what you're thinking. Wait a minute. What about my part in salvation? What about the free will? What about human responsibility in salvation? Yes, absolutely true. There is free will. Yes, there is human responsibility. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, uh, come, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. And again, in Romans 10, 9, it says, if we confess him with our mouth and we believe in our heart, then we shall be what? Saved. So then again, in John 1, 12, I love this. Yet to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of what? God. So, on one side of salvation, there's my part. When I heard the gospel, someone was preaching to me. And by the way, they had to preach to me like a thousand times before I ever captured it. I heard the gospel a thousand times. And then finally, one day, it just clicked. Finally. Why? Because he caused it. He awoken the, the dead and the darkness within. And he brought life to it. He revived. He regenerated. There's man's part in salvation and then there's God's part. And what Peter just illustrated was God's part. That's what he's doing. He's trying to tell you salvation is really important. If you're going to make it through a hardship, if you're going to make it when life comes crashing down, then you got to keep it into perspective and understand that salvation is God's doing. So if he selects you, if he calls you, if he says you get eternal life, bank on that. Man's part in salvation, yes, you can 
come to him. Yes, you can confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and you should. And we should call people to do that, and we receive and believe in Jesus. But then there's God's part of salvation. Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose us before he created the whole world. Did you know that you were chosen for salvation, for a purpose, before God created the whole world? The Bible says that he has chosen you. He has set you apart. He has called you. Additionally, we hear Jesus say this in John chapter 15, 16. Jesus says, I chose you, you did not choose me. Jesus says that. And then there's this reality though, that God's heart, God in 2 Peter 3, 9, God doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. So imagine, imagine you go to heaven. You die, you're going to heaven, you're there, and you see this big door. And on the top of the door, it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you're like, hey, that looks like a good door. I'm going through that door. You go through it, you say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. You open the door, you walk through, and you're like, man, and it's a beautiful paradise. Then you look back at the door, and it says, before the foundations of the earth, you've been chosen in him predestined according to his plan and to his purpose. And you say to yourself, wait a second. I thought I chose God. And you say, from everything that your perspective, you say, yeah, I say, yeah, sure. You chose him. But when you get there, you realize you've been predestined, you've been planned, You've been chosen. You've been selected before the foundations of the earth. And you say to me, logically, Ryan, I don't know how that makes sense. They seem to be at odds against each other, those two truths. People have asked me, don't, how do you reconcile those, Pastor Ryan? Human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And my response is, I don't reconcile friends that don't have a war against each other. They get along just great. It's kind of like a quarter. On one side, you look at the quarter and you see heads. Is it a quarter? Let me try that again. On one side of the quarter, you see heads. Is it a quarter? On a flip over the quarter and you see tails. And I say, what is this? And you say, it's a quarter. Is it a quarter? Depends on your perspective, how you look at it, what you see. It's in the same way with God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Here's the joy in all this. If you don't keep this in perspective, you think salvation is dependent all on you. I've heard people say, well, if I can accept Jesus, I can reject him. Yeah, but let me just tell you something. God's promises are true. And when he says he chose you, that he's predestined you, that he's elected you, and you get eternal life, you bank on that promise. And Peter goes to great lengths to help people grasp it because they're gonna be tested. They're gonna wanna give up on their faith. They're gonna feel like a sorry Christian in the midst of persecution and hardship. And Peter's saying, hey, let me just tell you real quick, number one, your salvation, you keep that in perspective. You better keep your salvation in perspective. God did the choosing, he called you. And yes, you respond, but you were only able to respond because God in his mercy revived the heart, provoked you to come to a knowledge of understanding and saying, I want, to, I want freedom from my sin. I want freedom from my burden. And so you choose, you confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart. And God says, I did that plan before the whole foundations of the earth. So there's this reality that we have this salvation. And 
you, we ask the question is, we've got to, are we going to keep that in perspective whenever we're going through hardship? The second thing that we need to keep into perspective is suffering. Um, they're going through a lot of suffering and they're going to go through a lot more of it. If you don't keep suffering in perspective, you're not going to be able to overcome the trials, the temptations, the tests. You're not going to be able to do it. The Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians how he's been beat, whipped, shipwrecked. He's been abandoned. He's gone sleepless nights. He's been in jail. And then in 2 Corinthians, he writes this about his suffering. He says, hey, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, listen to what he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's perspective for you. He's saying, though outwardly I'm falling apart, inwardly something's happening in here. I'm being renewed every single day. Why? Because every trial has a test. And if you pass the test, the test is, am I going to trust God in the middle of my circumstances? If you don't keep suffering in perspective, in verse 17, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying in the middle of it, the tragedy, the, the struggle, the hardship, God's doing something glorious in it. Verse 18, he says, as we look in not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for these things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, kept it in perspective. You got to keep it in perspective in salvation. You got to keep it into perspective in your suffering. Your suffering produces something. And here's the good news is according to 1 Corinthians 10, 13, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us no temptation has overtaken you. In other words, God's not going to place you in a trial or a, a test you in a manner that you're not going to be able to overcome that temptation. He gives you enough power, gives you enough that, to resources to rely upon to overcome those temptations. Suffering. The always of suffering. I was thinking about this this week. What do we always need to remember when we're going through suffering? I know this is not in your notes, but you may want to write this down. Keep it in perspective when you're suffering. Realize, number one, that someone's always doing worse than you are, right? You hear about your hardship, you're going through a hard time, your marriage, your business, whatever. Listen to me, the world's big, a lot of people. Someone's always doing worse than you are. Just keep that into perspective. Secondly, realizing you're suffering, this is the hard part, someone's always doing better than you are. Someone's always doing better than you are. So then you're frustrated and you're like, you're not content because you're like, God, why are they doing better than I am? Why? Why, why are they moving faster? How can they handle that responsibility? How come they don't have the problems I have? Here's the reality. I've said this before. Life's just not fair. It's not. We live in a fallen, broken world. Thirdly, we realize this, the always in suffering. God's always at work in the middle of your suffering. That's the gospel promise. He's always at work in it. Always. No matter what you're going through, God's always at work. So there's always somebody worse than you. There's always somebody doing better than you. And God's always at work in the middle of your tragedy. Reasons why people suffer. This is a question I've got and I want to answer this. Reasons why people suffer. Number one, we live in a fallen world. 
According to Romans 5, 12, it says sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and it spread throughout all of humanity. So hear me on this. The world that you live in, the world that I live in, the tragedy, the trial, the tsunamis, the earthquakes, the violence, the killing, the murder, the abortions, the rape, all that stuff that's going on, the disease, the divorces, the destruction that we see, here's why. We live in a fallen world, man. Sin has entered into the world and it has infected and affected everything. Everything. Why are, why are we going through trials? Well, number one, just theologically, boom, knocked us down into the download. Since the, the world has fallen, it's broken. It needs restoration. Second reason why people suffer is sometimes people hurt us. Just got bad people in the world, man. Bible talks about there are wise people, evil people, and foolish people. You want to be a wise person, but there's evil people bent on doing evil things. That's why we have guns. That's why we have lawyers. That's why you protect yourself. Sins entered the world. Sometimes people hurt us. Number three, sometimes we hurt ourselves. I heard a young lady say to me, why did God let me get pregnant? I'm like, well, think about that. Why did God let me get a DUI again? Well, think about that. You hurt it yourself. Why do people suffer? Sometimes it's for spiritual growth. Why do we suffer? Sometimes it's a test. God's testing you. Your trial is promised with a test. Question is, will you pass that test? Here's the test. It's not, it's not, let me explain something. The trial is not bent on whether you're saved or not. It's just bent on will you grow further in trust and dependence on the Lord. The test is do you trust me? Because everybody goes through trials. But the question is do you trust him in the middle of your trial? God will use it for a, a test. Last thing I want to point out to you is that there's sometimes we have to get a perspective on God's silence. He doesn't answer all the prayers the way you want. The prophets were frustrated because they wanted to know all the details about Jesus, when he was coming, when this Messiah would rule, when this Messiah would reign, when we would, they would see the kingdom coming, when the suffering servant would take up his position and atone for the sins of the world for all those who believed in him. If you don't have a perspective on your salvation, on uh, your, help me here, your suffering, and then lastly, about God's silence, you'll find yourself defeated and discouraged. There's a lot of things that we just don't understand. Isaiah the prophet said, hey, listen, your ways, uh, the, uh, he's prophesying on behalf of the Lord, and the Lord says to the nation of Israel, your ways are not my ways. In other words, God's saying, the way you do things and the way I do things are different. You're mortal, I'm immortal. That's what the Lord says. You're limited in knowledge, I'm unlimited in knowledge. Keeping in perspective God's silence, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things belong to God. There are things that are secret and you don't understand and you never will understand. And if you're not getting comfortable with the silence at times, you're gonna get so discouraged, so defeated, and we've got to learn to get comfortable sometimes with the silence. 
Even in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, um, they're wanting to know when Jesus will rule and reign and when he'll return again and take over and set up a new kingdom, a new earth. And Scripture says, Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels know. There's this reality that God pushes upon us to say, I'm not going to answer all your questions. You're going to have to deal with the silence. And in that comes this test. Can we trust the Lord in this? Can we trust him? Can we trust him that thankfully our salvation is not dependent on us, it's dependent on him? Thankfully, Lord, that in the suffering, it's hard, but you're working out something good. You work all things together for good for those who know him according to his plan and to purpose. And then in the middle of the silence, can you trust that, you know what, I don't have to have all the answers, but I'm gonna trust, I'm gonna walk by faith. Here's the take-home truth for you is this, is that you need to keep, that perspective can change everything. If you hold to a perspective that God, you're good. Man, I got an inheritance awaiting me. My salvation is set. It's a light momentary affliction according to the apostle Paul that you're at work in me all the time through it. That you've saved me because of your mercy, not my merit. That you're working, Lord, in my suffering, you're right there and you're producing something good and godly and it's like gold. And in the silence, Lord, I'm gonna to choose to trust in you. Here's what I wanted to say to you. Some of you ask that question is, is man, I don't know if I'm born again. Let me be very clear. You can't have the perspective and the hope and the promises unless you are born again. So I wanna just pause for a moment and speak to you just for a moment. Those of you that say, I don't know if I'm truly born again, in a relationship with Jesus Christ? How do I know if God has chosen me? How do I know if God has predestined me? How do I know if God has elected me? Here's this. The verse says in, in John 1:12, yet to all who received him, to all those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you simply receive Jesus Christ, the good news is you run through those doors, come to me, all you who are weary. You look back and you go, oh my goodness, that was predestined and planned before the foundations of the earth. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you're at work. Lord, and today for those that just say, Lord, I don't know if I'm born again. I pray that today would be the day they say, Lord, today I'm placing my faith in you. I receive Jesus, you as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your hope and your healing. I love you. I need you in my life. Make me new and change everything about my life. Lord, thank you that through you I am born again, a son, a daughter of the King. And Lord, for all my friends here today, uh, whatever trial that they're going through, whatever hardship or suffering that they're feeling, God, the reality is in the Christian life, there's great joy and there's great sorrow. And help us to live with that tension within. Lord, and to savor our salvation and to rely upon your spirit in the suffering. Lord, and to trust you in the silence. Lord, in you and through you, we shall overcome. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.